here. So Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, you uh, might be able to see on the, the board there, I've got a, a question for you to consider as you, you turn and, and uh, think about where we're at. And that is, um, if I was to ask you, what is your favorite Bible doctrine? What would it be? What do you think you would name as your favorite Bible doctrine? Not what do you think is the most important Bible doctrine. So I'm not asking you what's the most important. So I'm not asking you to rank it in order of importance. But what is uh, to you your favorite one? That is, what is the one that is for you the most personally compelling or the one that is uh, most precious to you? Perhaps as you're thinking on those things and considering what it might be, maybe... Maybe for you, it's the, uh, the doctrine of, of soteriology that is uh, what we, we talk about when we talk about uh, how and why God saves. Um, perhaps it's the, uh, the most fundamental of all doctrines, and that is theology proper. That is the study of God and who God is and uh, how he, he operates and lives and, and works and who he is by his nature. Or maybe you're thinking, my favorite doctrine is Christology. That is, the, the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I, I, I love to think on what Christ has done and who he is. Or perhaps for you, the, the most compelling of doctrines is what we call bibliology. That is, the study of the nature of the word of God. How God brought it to us and has kept it for us. Or maybe like many in uh, these times, it's eschatology. That is the study of end times. What's going to happen in the end? How is God going to bring it all together and, and do everything? So maybe, maybe amongst those is your, your favorite doctrine, or perhaps you're thinking a little bit more specifically in terms of, of those doctrines, and maybe rather than just thinking about the, the, uh, the nature of God as a whole, you're thinking maybe my favorite one is the sovereignty of God. And that's what I would think is my, my favorite. Or perhaps... If you're thinking in terms of salvation, maybe adoption is the doctrine that you love most and that God has adopted us into his family as sons of God. Or perhaps if thinking about Christ, you're thinking about his exaltation and how he rules and, and reigns. And maybe that, or maybe it's the preservation of God's word if it comes to the Bible. Or maybe your, your pet and most precious is that of the millennial reign of Christ could be one of any number of things really to think about and that you might grab onto and and consider uh, as your your favorite or most precious uh, Bible truth Bible doctrine that you you love the next question I guess that would come as you consider what that might be is is why have you found that doctrine to be so compelling what is it about that particular aspect of God or God's Word have you found to be so intriguing, so precious to you. Maybe it's because there was a comfort that it has brought to you in the years that have gone by. Or maybe it's the, the awe that it inspires in you of who God is. Or perhaps a personal experience has made that more uh, living in your eyes or your understanding because you have seen and experienced that in a very particular and personal way so maybe those are feeding into it for me the answer to that question is very easy it's a very easy one for me to answer the answer to that question what is my favorite doctrine ecclesiology the study of the church what is the church 
by far my most favorite doctrine. It is something I am deeply passionate about. And let me tell you why. I did ask you that question, so I should answer that myself. Why would I consider that to be my favorite doctrine? Because in the context of the local church, all of those beautiful doctrines which we have just gone through come together. It's in the context of a church that we find the beauty, the glory, the the fleshing out of all of the glorious doctrines of Scripture. It's why every New Testament writer speaks so highly and so beautifully of the local church. It's why Christ himself expresses such a deep passion for church. You can see his passion when you read through Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Jesus himself addresses seven churches. And in every word of those letters, you can hear the heart of God as he pleads and addresses these churches. In a church, the nature of God is expressed. In church, the details of the gospel are lived out. In church, the authority of God's word finds its expression. It is the place where all the beauties of God and the beauties of God's word find in this earth the most beautiful expression, the most beautiful fleshing out. There is no single doctrine of God's word that does not find itself personified in the local church. It is expressed. It is seen in every single way. You see, the church is a very special, very unique organism. It is something that has no equal in all of history and in all of the earth. And so if it's something that is so close to God's heart, something he deeply loves, then we ought to love the church deeply and passionately too. We ought to understand what it is that makes him love it so deeply. It is this natural, or this supernatural love and work of God that makes the church the most beautiful place on earth. For the next few weeks, that's going to be our topic of discussion. The most beautiful place on earth. And I hope that as we look through this, that I can help show you from God's word the beauty of God's design. I mean, there's a thousand places. If I were to ask you what is the most beautiful place on earth, there's probably a thousand things we could come up with and say that's the most beautiful place on earth. But nothing surpasses the beauty and the glory of the church. It is a magnificent place. So I've edited, deliberately edited, the many sermons and studies we have gone through over the last several years to bring us into a short study of essentially the church. So in the next few weeks, we're going to be covering these topics and thinking about these thoughts. This morning, thought it appropriate that we start by moving our heart to this church. And so we're going to talk from Ephesians chapter 1 this morning about a beautiful prayer for your church. How can we pray for our church? Next week, we're going to be talking about the beautiful plan for the church. And that is, what was Jesus' intention in establishing the church? 
What did he have in mind? What was his purpose? What is a church supposed to look like based on what Jesus told us a church would be? Then we'll look at the beautiful partnership in the church. And that's essentially going to be talking about how a church functions, how it works. How did God design for a church to work together, to function and to be what he intended it to be? And then finally, we're going to look at the beautiful purpose of the church. And that is, what is the church supposed to do and how is it supposed to do it? And in all of these things, I think we will see the beauty of God's design. Why he chose to do it this way. Because there are a myriad of different ways God could have decided that he was going to spread the gospel throughout the world. To do what he needed to do. He could have kept going with Israel and doing it the, the way he had begun and, and, and leave Israel to do all that. But instead, he chose to bring into his plan this glorious and beautiful place called the church. So I want to read for just a moment this morning as we begin here, thinking about the most beautiful place on earth. I want us to read in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. As we talk this morning about a beautiful prayer for your church. It says here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, pardon me, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to take some time to, to ponder in the days ahead, the weeks ahead, the beauty of what you have designed in this body stir us and encourage us and fill us with the deep love and passion for church that you have for it. Lord, as we contemplate this morning how to pray for one another, how to pray for this church, Lord, fill us with zeal, with passion, with your spirit, that we might intercede for one another in a passionate and deep way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we, we think of these things and we consider perhaps the question we saw at the beginning, what's your, your favorite doctrine or what's the one that's most compelling or personal to you? We might think of things and sometimes, it, perhaps when I asked that question, you thought doctrine, dull. And, and if this is going to be doctrine thing, then we're just going to go to sleep because it's just, you know, details. But it's not like that. See, Paul doesn't see this as merely theoretical. You, you read through the letters of Paul and, and his, his letters about the depth of doctrines are the most passionate things you have ever read. In fact, the first chapter of Ephesians here where he talks about some of the deepest 
uh, uh, spiritual truths which include our, our eternal salvation and the, the church and what God intends and, and the rule of Christ in eternity is one long running sentence. Paul was good like that because what he did, he just got caught up in the emotion and he just wrote and wrote and wrote. And when he finally caught his breath, he put a full stop. And that's what this is like. The, the first chapter is, is Paul just pouring out the beauties that he sees in these magnificent truths. And as he contemplates and he thinks on these beautiful truths, it moves Paul in these verses which we have just read to pray for this church at Ephesus. We know the importance of prayer. We've talked about it often and, and think on it often. But here, prayer isn't about needs. Prayer isn't just about praying about needs, but it's much deeper than that. And so we need to take Paul's example and pray for our church. With that in mind, we need to remember, or perhaps learn, that church isn't a building. Church isn't about a place, it's not even about events or programs. Church isn't what we do, or the building in which we, we gather. That is not church. In fact, the word church that we get, our English word church, from the Greek word used means called out assembly. It means a gathering of people called out by God himself. So to pray for church isn't to pray for the activities to go well. To pray for church isn't to, to pray that, that things would be, uh, go as we, we think or that we would have enough people to do enough ministries or reach out to enough ways. To pray for the church is to pray for the people sitting around you. It's to look around this morning and see around you. Who has God bound me to? And it's to pray for them. It's to pray for people. That is church. It's to pray for those that God has bonded together. So how can we pray for our church? I'm building around two basic thoughts which we'll flesh out through these things here. And the first one is that we need to pray passionately for our church. And the second one will be that we need to pray deeply for our church. And I want to see just a little bit through Paul's prayer here for Ephesus what that means in regards to how we can pray for our church individually and corporately. So let's begin here at the beginning to pray passionately for your church. Verse 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. First thing that we need to think about when we uh, turn our minds to pray for one another as a church is to praise God for their salvation. That is, look around you. Look at the people that gathered together that have committed to one another in this body and praise God for the salvation he has given. Thank God for our salvation. Consider just for a moment what Paul has said before this. Because our text where we began begins, therefore I also. So what he's saying and what he's about to do, this prayer he's moving into, is motivated, is moved, is inspired by what he has already said, which is this. Bear with me as we read for a few moments here from verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory." see the beauty of what God has done. Right there, he speaks about the salvation that comes to God's people. When God brings a person to salvation, these are the blessings, the great spiritual blessings. He speaks to us about God's eternal choice of salvation. He speaks to us about the great depths of that which are seen in forgiveness, in adoption into his family. He speaks to us about being sealed with the Holy Spirit uh, uh, to, to guarantee our eternity with him. There is almost no depth or doctrine in regards to salvation that Paul does not touch on in these few verses to remind us of what God has done in what we see as a very simple thing of believing Jesus Christ. And that thought... Those beauties that Paul has put our minds on in those verses move Paul not to just sit and pray for himself and to thank God for himself, but as he is thinking on the beauties and the glories of what God does in salvation, he says, I can't help but think of you. I can't help but thank God that all of these beauties are in you. This is what a church does. We don't think to thank God just for ourselves. To praise God just for ourselves and our own salvation. But we are drawn by the beauty of God's glory and salvation to look around us and to praise God for what he has done in the lives of those sitting next to us, behind us, on the other side of the aisle from us. That's what it means to thank God for one another. And note, he doesn't say that this is just a one-off prayer, but he says that he does it constantly to glory in God's grace in their life. We sit here today worshipping together because God has worked a miracle in each one of our lives that are his children. He has done something far beyond our expectations and our possibility. And he's done that in each and every one of his children. When you pray, thank God for his grace that he has poured out on those whom you have committed to worship with. To pray and thank God for those. And as we do that, 
Paul continues to show us here that we ought to praise God for their testimony. This, the, what the life looks like, how that salvation has come out. Paul here is stirred, having thought of all of these things that God has done. And then he comes and he says, I, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith. Now, Paul, he knew the church at Ephesus well. It is perhaps the place he spent most of his time on his journeys in Ephesus. So he had, he had taught the, the, the elders there, he had established it, he had done a great deal of work there in Ephesus. But while he is away and he is hearing reports coming from the church at Ephesus and what's going on around them as they're sending out pastors and missionaries all around them and that church is growing and doing what it ought to do and he's hearing these testimonies of God's work come to him. And as he's hearing what God is doing in their lives, it is moving him to praise God. As we listen, as we hear the testimonies and the stories of what God is doing in the lives of those around us, it ought to move us to praise and thank God for the testimony of that person. To praise and thank God for the work he is doing in and through them. To glory in God's grace. This is why it's not a selfish thing when we ask for prayer or when we're talking together to say, here's what God has done in my life. This is the glory of what God has done. It is not a selfish or self-centered thing to bring glory to God by saying God has done wonderful things in my life. Because you know what it does? It tells me, here is a way I can praise God for you. That I can glorify God because of your testimony. Pray for our testimony that the truth of our salvation is evident to those around us. We need to pray for one another that our light, both individually and corporately, would shine bright. That God could be seen through us. His glory and his salvation seen so clearly. That we would be true reflections of the light of Christ to this world. Thank God for the testimony that we have. Pray that the testimony of each one of us individually and the testimony of this church would be one which says God is there. And God is glorious. Paul praises God for their salvation, but he also praises God for their love. Their love is evident I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Love is evidence of faith. It is what shows what faith is. It is the expression of faith. It is like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. We can have all the right words. We can say all of the right things. But if we don't have love, it's just annoying noise. It needs to have love. Love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence of salvation. If you want to know how deeply true that is, read 1 John. John, the great apostle of the black and the white, pulls no punches in his gospel, where he writes to us of things like this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother, brother abides in death. 
This John is saying, if you cannot love your brothers and sisters in Christ, we have real reason to suspect your salvation. And here, this church loves. And the love they're showing for one another is a love which says, God is there. God's presence is there. People knew their faith. But they knew that their faith, the faith of this church was true because they saw it in the interaction with each other. And we've talked about this before and perhaps we'll talk about it a little bit more in the the days ahead is one of the, the great beauties, one of the great examples of what a church is and how it shows the nature of God is because in a church we learn to love people that outside of the church we probably wouldn't even associate with or know. It is one of the great uniqueness and super, supernatural things that God does in a church. The churches can be difficult to be a part of. There is no doubt to that. And when I say that church is the most beautiful place on earth, I don't mean to say that it is a place without fault. That's not what that statement means. But it is a place where we more clearly than any other where in this world see the beauty of God's love and God's nature. It's what shows we're genuine in belief is that we learn to live sacrificially with one another. To love one another sacrificially. And so we thank God for the love that he has shown the love that God has shown to us. And we thank God for the love that people show to us. It is part of recognizing the reality of who we are and what God has done for in our salvation that we recognize that we are not the easiest people to get along with. I know that is true for me. But one of the glories of the love of God is that we learn to cover those things so we are thankful for the love that is shown to us because we know that we are not always lovable and to that end we need to be a more loving people and so as Paul does we thank God that we are a part of a church we thank God that he has granted us in our salvation and bringing us together to be part of a church is a unique gathering. See, a church isn't a social club. It's far more than that. A church is not just a gathering of like-minded people. It's not a gathering of people who have a common goal or are common, commonly oriented people. It's not a gathering like that. The church isn't a place you go to do things. That's not church either. We don't stop being Cambridge Baptist Church when we go home. We still remain Cambridge Baptist Church when we're in our homes and when we're in our jobs. It doesn't happen just when we gather. That's the gathering of the church. But when we're not gathered, that doesn't mean that we are not a church. 
This is the glorious, supernatural, and miraculous assembly that God brings. It is His called out. It is something that God Himself builds. It is something that God Himself sustains and knits together. It is something which, no matter how hard we have tried as Christians over the centuries to manufacture this, we have not succeeded. We have tried and tried to make church something that we could manufacture, and it never works. Only what works is when God knits it together, when God builds it as he intends to. He calls people together, he equips them, he gifts them, and he binds our hearts as one. It is a people bound together in the spirit of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, to many, for reasons which we won't discuss today for, for time, we have lost sight of the beauty of what church is and what it should be. We've fallen into the rut or the, 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 the movement of so much of society to look at church from a very different, very shallow, anemic position. Church is the most beautiful creation of God. It is a magnificent place. We have lost sight of that too often. And every true assembly of God is personally and uniquely built and empowered by God. Every single one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now many of us know, uh, or perhaps as we've, we've grown in, we, we, uh, in church or, or heard around, we know 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 quite well. What know you not that the body, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which speaks to us to remind us that each individual believer is the dwelling place of God. The Holy Spirit abides in every believer as an individual. And so the call in that passage in 1 Corinthians 16 is because we are the dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit, we need to live our lives in that manner and in a manner pleasing and worthy of that. But for that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says a very similar thing, but the emphasis is different. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, do you, and this time the you is different than the you in 1 Corinthians 16, or chapter 6, because in chapter 6, the you is individual. In chapter 3, the you is collective. And so as he writes to this church, and he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, Do you, church at Corinth, not know that you are the temple of God 
and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. There is a very real and a very true doctrine and belief that God's Holy Spirit indwells every believer individually. That is absolutely, wholly, remarkably true. But there is also another truth to that, which we find expressed in the verse we just read, and that is that the Holy Spirit abides in the community of believers in a way which he does not abide in the individual of believers. Do you not know that you collectively are the place of God's presence? It is a glorious thing. God does in the community of his people, and he always has, what he does not do in the individual of his people. There is a uniqueness to God's work in community above and beyond what he does individually. To bind ourselves to God's people like this isn't just our duty. It is our duty, but not just our duty. It is our privilege. It is our great joy. So consider your part in this. As you consider the beauty of what God does in a church, what is your part in it? Where do I fit? Where do my gifts, which God enables me and empowers me to have, where do they find their mark? How do I pray for it? How do I give myself to it? To pray for our church, we need to pray passionately for our church. Let me quickly give you the second of those thoughts, and that is to pray deeply for your church. Verse 17 begins that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The things that we need to pray for one another is not just to be passionate about what we have and what God is doing, but to think about what God is doing and what God is showing in us, and that is that we need to be satisfied in Christ. See, Paul wants us to understand and he wants us to appreciate what he has just said in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 1. He wants us to take those in deeply, to understand them, to appreciate them. He wants us to be secure in knowing what we are in Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to understand what has he done? What is he doing? How is he working? This is what church is for, to help us grow in that depth of understanding, to not just know what God has done. It's not enough to just know what God has done, but to understand it. It's not enough to say, oh, the mind of God is far beyond me, I will never understand, and then not try. It is the mind of God is so far beyond me, I'll never understand, but I will dive as deeply in as I can. And my brothers and sisters will take me as deeply as they can. We need to be praying deeply for each other. Learn what it means to be a child of God. To pray that we will not be soon shaken or easily shaken from the faith by the troubles and the trials of this world. That we would be satisfied with what we have. One of my great 
sadnesses. Amongst modern Christianity, we are so unsatisfied with what God has given us. We always want more. And the reason we want more is because we don't understand what we have. Oh, if only God would, would do bigger things. God is going to do something great and mighty. God needs to give you more of himself. And we're constantly looking for more of God and more things of God because we're not understanding what God has already given us. If we knew what God had already given us, we would not be looking for more. Because we would understand that God has already given us more than we can possibly understand. We don't need more of God. We don't need more from God. We need to understand more deeply what he has given us. That's the role of church. To help us understand more deeply what God has given us. So that we will be satisfied with our God. Not dissatisfied, looking for things that are wasting our time. That we would have a deepening knowledge of God. You see, the goal of all of this, as Paul shows us in these words here, the goal of all of this is that we would know God better. And this should be the aim of our prayers for one another that we would know God better. His word more deeply. His nature more magnificently. You see, already we're touching on just these few moments to talk about the prayer we have for one another, and we have already talked about almost every major doctrine of Scripture, and we're seeing it in the context of church. We need to know God more deeply. We need to be growing in Christ. Verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That is, that our eyes would be opened. You know, before you were saved, before you knew Jesus Christ is your Savior, you were blind to the truth. But now, we are no longer blind to the truth. God has opened our eyes to see truth, and now we need to look into it. So as we pray for one another, we need to pray that we will see truth. We will understand truth. The prayer of Psalm 118, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. That our hearts would be transformed. You One of the glorious things of church and the way we pray for one another and the way we interact is to watch change. This church as a whole has changed over the years and we have changed. And I can show you and document every change that has happened over these years and they have all happened as a result of our study of God's word together. Some of the practical things that we have done have changed because of what we have seen in God's word over the years. Some of the doctrines we have had have not changed but have been refined because of what we have studied from God's word. This is what we're to pray for one another. That as we see God's word, it would transform us. That we become more and more like Jesus Christ. So that thirdly, we would be steadfast in hope. Verse 18 concludes that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That we would glory in God's promises. Pray that we don't lose sight of who God is and the promises that he has made. 
but learn to take hold of his promises. To believe strongly, we are going to need hope. To believe in the face of strong opposition that God will keep his promises so that we would be secure in God's promises. Hebrews says this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Lastly, glory in Christ's power. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We need to pray for one another that we would know that God is working. How often have you been in the midst of life wondering where is God? What is he doing? Has he abandoned? When a brother and sister in Christ comes up and shares with you what they see or what God is doing and you're reminded God is working. I don't always see it, but God is working. That is part of what we do as a church to remind that God is always at work in us and the work that he is doing in us is not piddly little waste of time nothingness stuff. He is working in us with a power which is able to raise from the dead. That's not weenie power. That is true power. A power which has the power and might to transform so that we would be reminded that Christ reigns. He is in control. He is sovereign above all. And he has not left his church to float aimlessly in the waves of a violent world. When we remember he reigns, we have no need to fear. When we remember he reigns, we have motive to serve. When we remember he reigns, we exalt his name and proclaim his glory and salvation. The church is a glorious, miraculous work of God. Something supernatural. Something that only God can do. There is no other way to form it. There is no other way to empower it. There is no other way to build it. Only God can do that. And to that, we'll discuss more next week. It's not just a place that we come to on Sunday. Church is God's people gathered, committed, bound in heart and love. It is a unique spiritual gathering empowered by God. To be part of a church is to be part of something grand. I'm afraid that too much of our society, too much of our Christian society, has seen church as a social club. To be 
part of a church is to be part of something God does. That, that's indescribable. To be what God designed, to be empowered to do what God intends, I don't have the words for that. It is a grand thing. It is a place to give yourself, to commit yourself to God and to his people. So will you pray passionately for this church this week? Will you pray deeply for this church this week? Look around and what you see, who you see, is what I mean by will you pray passionately and deeply? It's these faces, it's these people that God gathers. Consider your place, pray deeply. Let's pray. Our glorious Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you have done in the lives of those here today. That you have called them out of darkness and into light. That you have placed them as sons and daughters in your family. That you have loved them and show love. And may the love that you show them flow through us be a testimony of your goodness and of your salvation. Help us to grow together, to be of one heart and of one mind, to encourage each other to faithfulness and to love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our Head. Amen.